Welcome to another episode of Experable. Today, I am talking to Lisa Sun, who is the founder and CEO of Gravitas, a company on a mission to catalyze confidence. Gravitas offers innovative, size-inclusive apparel, styling solutions, and content designed to make over women from the inside out. Prior to founding Gravitas, Lisa spent 11 years at McKinsey & Company, where she advised leading luxury, fashion, and beauty brands and retailers in the U.S., Asia, Europe, and Latin America on strategic and operational issues. Lisa and Gravitas have been featured on CNN, Forbes, Fast Company, New York Magazine, Elle, InStyle, and more, often called the Dress Whisperer. Lisa is also a highly sought-after public speaker and author. Uh, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing Lisa's latest book, Gravitas, The Eight Strengths That Redefine Confidence. In this book and in today's episode, our guest explains that while there is no silver bullet to achieving self-belief, confidence is a choice that everyone can make. That choice can lead you to Gravitas, which Lisa defines as a total approach to living life with self-assurance. According to Lisa, people cannot change their behaviors until they change their mindset, and changing that mindset requires inner reflection and real work. Through proprietary research and her own life experiences, Lisa has cracked the code to help you build self-worth on your own terms. We discuss all that and more during this conversation, including how best to handle negative feedback, advice for young, overly aggressive graduates joining the workforce, navigating crisis of confidence, and cultivating your personal power. Welcome back to Experable. I'm your host, Krati Mehra. And in this show, we learn from the success and struggles of people we admire and dive deep into concepts that help us expand the possibilities available to us so we can freely, boldly design the life we desire, discover the depth and breadth of our capabilities, access the wisdom available in the world around us, and even on really bad days, love what we see in the mirror. Are you ready? Let's go. I know people will learn about your story when they start reading the book, but let's just start with how you, you know, picked up the subject, Gravitas. How did that happen? And what this, having done the work that you've done, what does this now mean to you? What does this word represent for you? Sure. Well, the origin story of the word is when I was 22 years old and I was in my first job, my first professional review, my boss told me I didn't have any Gravitas. And it really kicked off a now 23-year exploration of what it means to have gravitas. What I found is that from whether it's boardrooms to dressing rooms, it's a quality that many of us have been told we should have more of, that we should have more confidence, but most people are fairly stumped by how to get it. And so I really went on this journey in part for myself. I do think you write the book, you most need to read yourself. But what I've discovered is that so many people have moments of self-doubt, and I want to help them turn those moments into bursts of self-confidence. So I encountered this word really early on in my journey, mostly in the context of the fact that I was told I didn't have any. Now that you've done this work and you've helped so many people, what does this word now represent for you in the sense that like the, the definition you would want people to take away from this conversation, considering they've not done the work they have not yet had the experiences that you've had. I, you know, before we get to redefining it, I think we have to establish the fact that gravitas, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's about dignity, importance, depth of substance, essentially confidence. And 
what I think has happened over the hundreds of years of the development of the concept of confidence is we've reduced it to a behavior. So when someone tells you to be more confident, they are basically saying, speak up, stand on a stage, be assertive. It's a very behavioral swagger. If you look up the word confident in the dictionary, it has nothing to do with performance, bravado, or swagger. It's an understanding of, appreciation of, and trust in your own abilities. Something that we as adults struggle with. But if you go back to your childhood, if you've ever been around a five-year-old, five-year-olds, we are born fully self-confident, right? Ask a five-year-old what they're the best at in the world, and they'll tell you, I'm the best at soccer, I'm the best at hugs, I'm the best at everything. In fact, at that age, we haven't learned how to compare and despair. We haven't had setbacks or disappointments. We don't see our flaws. We only see our potential and our strengths. And then in our adolescence, starting at the age of eight, but continuing on for the rest of our adulthood, in chapter two of my book, we identified six forces that hold you back from confidence. And these six forces form the basis of an inner critic. So that as an adult, in order to become self-confident, it's less about a behavior. It's making a choice to break out of these six forces and changing your mindset before it becomes a behavior. So much of confidence is spoken about about behavior, but that's only 10% of the equation. 90% of the work is the thoughts, values, and feelings you have about yourself, even before anyone else sees them. And so when you ask me the redefinition of the word, well, first of all, the word gravitas, it's not a state of being. It's a total approach to how you live life with self-assurance. It takes into account the fact that we have ups, downs. Every morning we wake up with our inner critic. It's not like all of a sudden you snap your fingers and you're confident. It's actually an ongoing journey. And it's really about things don't get easier, we get stronger. And so how do we have the strongest mindset to take on the day? And it's really about mindset before it becomes behavior. I agree with you. There's definitely um, a misunderstanding around this concept of confidence because I think to a lot of people, confidence is loud. I think confidence is a very, very quiet presence. It's I think there is something about that. that that's always how I viewed it. Of course, that would be different for a lot of people. This is why I wanna, one of the reasons why I wanted to learn this from you because you, you're doing this work and you're helping so many people you know, develop confidence. So yeah, I agree with what you've said. Um, you, you talked about the six forces that form the basis of the self-critic. It, it, care to expand on that? Although I, I just want to go back to something you said. I don't think any form of confidence is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I yes. want to say that the work that we did was we discovered that confidence comes in eight different forms, one of which is very extroverted but many of others are not as loud and outspoken. And so it's really about how do we create an inclusive and empowering language around confidence so everyone can have it, because there's actually room for lots of different types and profiles of confidence. Um, In terms of the six forces, well, I want people to read the book. So I hate giving them away. So I hope everyone does get the book and read chapter two. But let me me talk about some of those six forces. you know, the, I will name them and then I'll go a little bit into one of them. The six forces we identified are deficit mindset, where you see your weaknesses and what's missing over your potential. So when you look in the mirror, do you look for your beautiful eyes or do you look for your wrinkles? Shrinking effect, where you shortchange yourself or underestimate your own abilities. 
this is why many of us say sorry when we're not even sorry. It's like a default. And we need to stop saying sorry, instead say thank you. Also, why women will only apply for a job if they're 100% qualified and men will apply if they're only 60% qualified. For some reason, there's a shrinking effect where we underestimate our own abilities versus others or a standard. Uh, The third one is satisfaction conundrum, where we tie our self-worth to an external marker. I'll be happy when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be happy when I get a job. The problem is when you tie your self-worth to that, if you don't get it, you beat yourself up. If you do get it, you chase the next one, right? I've lost 10 pounds. I think I could lose another five. I'm not saying not to have goals in life, but we can't let those goals define how we value ourselves, how much we like ourselves. Uh, The fourth one is called superhero facade. This is where you pretend everything in your life is going well. And in fact, the most confident people in the world will tell you where they're failing. So whenever you see me succeeding in one part of my life, I'm definitely failing in another. If you're a superhero, you don't invite anyone to be on the journey with you or to have their fingerprints on your success. Setback spiral is the fifth where a negative moment, a disappointment expounds to cover other parts of your life. So not only did this bad thing happen, it must mean I'm a terrible friend, sister, mother, all the things. So we spiral. And the sixth one is systemic bias, where there's asymmetrical structures of power. Uh, There's essentially unfair rules. And the problem is if you don't see the systemic bias, you think it's your fault. And a lot of times, if systemic bias is at work, you don't have to beat yourself up. In fact, you're very valuable. It's that the system wasn't built by you or for you. Yeah. So together, these six forces, I think, are a very important framing device. So when you feel insecurity, when you feel fear, being able to diagnose which of these six forces you're feeling actually helps you solve the problem. But we can't jump all the way to confidence until we know what is holding us back. First of all, thank you for pointing that out, that confidence can look different, you know, for different people. And it has so many different aspects to it. It can be, that's one of the things that I appreciated about your book, uh, that the fact that you pointed that out. Yes, you are absolutely right. I was wrong on that. So (laughs) I would ask. No, no, it's not about right or wrong. I just wanted to clarify That's my experience. Yeah, for sure. That is my experience for me. It is everyone's experience. Yeah. There are other people like that out there who would feel like, yeah, what Krati is saying, I'm like that. But I really, really, this is why I love your book, because it's making space for all of us. There is room for all of us to find some pieces of our identity there and then to, you know, add nuance, add layers to that. This is one of the reasons why I think everyone should read that book. And what you've talked about, like those six posts, I, uh, again, read the book, but these six, the, the six that the, the list that you've given, if you just put up, put it up on a mirror or, a, or on a laptop, I think that what, what do we call it? Cognitive biases, the thinking styles that we have that we use to always sort of, you know, turn things in a way where it's, it does, it's not serving us. It's working against us. I think you will be able to get out of that trap with what you've pointed out, because that instantly sort of invites you to, you know, consider the situation in a different light. Well, and I think what, why I call gravitas an approach and not a state of being is I'll give you an example. Someone I know said that they were really depressed. And I said, okay, well, which of these six forces are you feeling? And this person said, satisfaction conundrum. I had a, a shoulder injury and I was supposed to be the captain of a volleyball league team. 
And I opened up Instagram and that team that I was supposed to captain won the gold medal and I wasn't in the photo. I wasn't a part of it. And I tied so much of my happiness to winning a gold medal this year. I said, okay, well, what else do you have going on in your life? Let's take an inventory of your value. And the person started telling me all their accomplishments for the year. And I said, well, you have a lot of abundance in your life. You know, this is, this is a really, actually a very different story. And they said, you're right. I do. And I don't know why I tied so much of my happiness to this moment. I said, well, how do you feel now? And the person said, you know what? I'm going to go like that post on Instagram. I'm going to share it. I'm going to text that team. Congratulations. I'm going to be happy for them because I'm happy for the things I have going on in my life. Like, I thank you for helping me understand it with satisfaction conundrum that was making me feel this way. And I think this language, it's not just for us, but everyone's going through it. So if there's someone in your life, someone you're working with, you can really have that conversation on, you know, what, let's double click on why you feel that insecurity. When you give voice to your inner critic, when you literally darkness cannot survive the light of connection, when you're able to sift through, this is why I'm feeling this way it actually then allows you to go and do the harder work of realizing how much value you bring to the table. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, that story. I think that that would really clarify things for us and invite us to do the same, you know, as and when we are facing a slump. Uh, but talk to me about how you do it. Like, I know you've done all of this work and you have sort of, you know, probably cultivated a lot of self-knowledge by this point and you have tools and internal coping mechanisms. but now, when you face a challenge in your life, a crisis of confidence, how do you manage that? Well, here's the thing. Before we even get there, like, I want to just lay out the approach, which is uh, one of the inspirations for writing this book and going and doing all this work over the last decade is in 2013, Janet Yellen was nominated to be the first woman head of the Federal Reserve. And there were hundreds of articles about how she did not have the gravitas to lead the Fed. And Ezra Klein at the Washington Post, he wrote this beautiful op-ed that said, it's because the pervasive view of gravitas does not stretch to include her. She's soft-spoken, she's collaborative, and she's the most qualified for this job. Why isn't that gravitas too? Why is it that only charisma and extroversion is labeled as gravitas? This seems incredibly unfair. And so we launched this thousand-person quantitative study about confidence in America, and then we did 32 focus groups. And through that work, we discovered that there isn't one form of confidence, there are eight. And take a quiz. I'm sure you've taken the quiz at myconfidencelanguage.com. And you can discover which of the types of confidence you have. And what I think is really great about it is a self, it's a self-affirming inventory of the value you bring to others and to your own life. I think so many of us struggle to have the words. If I asked you a question a five-year-old can answer, you know, what's your superpower? What are you best at in the world? Most of us struggle. It's easy to tell you which of these six forces I'm feeling today, but to be able to tell you, hey, these are the things that I'm the best at in the world, we re- it feels hard. It feels like a hard exercise. And so the first step beyond just making the choice to break out of these six forces I think the next step is how do you take an inventory of your strengths? And so we developed this approach at myconfidencelanguage.com to be able to help people have the words to understand what their value is. And those strengths, the eight strengths, I think are a very compelling way to frame up 
what kind of confidence you have. Before we can jump to behaving differently, we have to understand what gas in the tank we have. That helps uh, massively and answers one of the questions that I had for you was starting from like level zero. If you're starting to do this work on yourself, like developing confidence, I think that what you've shared is will be massively helpful for someone, um, you know, wanting to navigate that. But uh, coming back to the question that I asked you, like if you have a crisis of confidence, maybe you're about to step on stage and you're feeling having like that inner voice that's telling you that oh not so prepared today perhaps <laughs> how would you how would you react to that voice so what, what I would say is like maybe I'll walk through the eight and we'll talk about which of the eight you need for which circumstances right because I think it's it's what I found is the work is way before you're even on stage like if you're if you're if if, if you are nervous in the moment before stage then we haven't done the work before um, because when you get to stage, it's all behavior, right? I can talk about breathing exercises. I can talk about meditation. I can talk about gratitude. I, there's a lot of things you can do in the moment that I think is very behavioral. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is we've turned confidence into a performative, fake it to make it, get through this situation. When I think it's really more of a lifelong practice that when you're put in those moments of adversity, you've actually done 80 to 90% of the work. The last 10 or 20% might be bringing your heart rate down getting centered. And that's very behavioral to me. So when I talk about the work that you do, even before you get to those moments, the eight superpowers we identified are leading, which is I'm in charge. I set direction, performing, which is extroversion. I can be center stage. I'm comfortable being in the stop spotlight is what we're doing right now. Those two qualities are the most written about. And less than 20% of America have those two qualities. And that was my point. 80% of us have been made to feel bad about ourselves because we don't fit the mold. By the way, if we all led and performed all day, nothing would ever get done. Uh, the next two are achieving and knowing. Achieving, I get things done with the winner's mindset. I set goals and I meet or exceed them. If I fail, I get back up. Practice makes perfect. A lot of athletes have this. Uh, knowing I'm smart. I'm process-oriented. I research things. I'm super thoughtful. You want to build IKEA furniture with someone like that. Those two qualities I often talk about as the three characters or the three real-life women from the movie Hidden Figures. How do three black women at NASA make such a big difference in sending a man to space? It's because they were achieving and knowing. They weren't in charge, right? They were the smartest people. And that was the source of their confidence. They weren't the loudest in the room. They were the ones getting the work done. Uh, the next two are giving and believing. I'm empathetic. I'm supportive. I care about others. Believing is I'm optimistic. I see the positive in everyone in every situation. If things don't work out, they weren't meant to be. The best pop culture example of that is the character Ted Lasso in the Apple TV show. You know, his superpower was believing. It wasn't about leading and performing. It was really about I'm not here to win or lose. I'm here to make everyone around me the best possible versions of themselves. And then the last two, creating. Um, I can will an idea to existence. I can believe in something before I see it. Uh, I'm an immigrant, so a lot of immigrants have this. Like immigrants believe in things. They, they create something from nothing. And then the eighth quality, which is very hard to channel, is called self-sustaining. I like myself. I don't need to impress anyone. If... Uh, I'm asking for a raise or a favor or overcoming criticism. I don't take it personally. I don't spiral. And so when you think about these eight qualities, part of the answer is figuring out 
which ones you have. Most of us have two or three. My mom has all eight. Actually, some people have all eight. But the idea is I need to be able to articulate my value. So now let's go to the stage, right? I know my superpowers. My personal superpowers are performing, leading, creating, and giving. And so performing is one of my top superpowers. And if you go to chapter six of the book and you say giving a speech or a presentation or being on a stage, it tells you you need performing. So I basically go, you know what? That's one of my superpowers. I don't need to work on that. I should trust my own abilities. Now, if you have to get on a stage and performing is not your superpower, then that's where you need to practice. That's where, and there's a whole section in the book on if you want this superpower for this situation, here's how to go get it. So the example of being on a stage specifically, that is what I call the performing superpower. That is your ability to connect with an audience, your ability to share your message visually, verbally, you know, through your body language. And so there's a lot of tricks to that moment. But even, you know, days before you're getting on the stage, you need to know if you're ready for that. Do you have the mindset and the skills to go get it? Yeah. Thank you for all of those examples. Uh, I love the examples also from the book also. Uh, okay. Let me ask you about, you shared this one thing about how, you know, you have to believe and you ha- that also allows you to navigate uh, feedback. But a lot of, one thing that challenges our confidence or our self-image a lot is other people's perception of us. As in when we have feedback coming at us, be it personal, professional. Professional, I think we develop a sensitivity to do that because it has consequences. So talk to me about that. How would you recommend people navigate those moments where they're hearing something that is that's making them question their self-image? That is making them wonder if they are, you know, as qualified as they believe themselves to be, as smart, as efficient as they believe themselves to be. Well, you know, I always think of the mindset of feedback is a gift, not a stick of dynamite. In fact, my toughest coaches were the best because they cared enough about me to succeed. So I really think it's about how we view feedback. And in chapter six of my book, I talk about receiving feedback. One of the most important qualities is to see feedback as being in the service of someone's development, right? And making sure you understand how to have feedback conversations. First of all, I think. If you go into it with anxiety and already doubting yourself, then you're obviously going to spiral. I think if you go in knowing, hey, I have a lot of value to bring to the table, I like myself, and this person cares about me and is just trying to push me to my next level of development, you are able to receive and hear it. I think if you view it as this person is here to, and, and everyone has a different corporate culture. So if you see it as this person's here to, you know, beat me up, highlight my weaknesses right now. But I see it as if someone says, for example, hey, I need you to speak up more. When you are strong, you can say, hey, what's one way I could do that? Can you give me how you do it? And when we start, I always say, you know, the mentor chooses you. You don't choose the mentor. Make yourself mentorable. So engage in the dialogue around, hey, I I really love, thank you for sharing that. I love that you shared that with me. It really matters to me that you care about my development. How would you help me do that? Can you give me one or two examples of how I could improve? Or what do you do to speak up more? Can you show, you know, next time I have to speak up or I'm not, can you please in that moment tell me to or give me feedback after the meeting? When you see feedback as a stick of dynamite, 
it's very hard to receive. If you see it as a gift and if you see it as in the service of your own development, I mean, I started a company named Gravitas based off of a piece of feedback. Lisa comes across young and overly enthusiastic times. She should seek to have more Gravitas. And most people go, that's amazing that you didn't get crushed. In fact, you turned it into an entire company. And I said, absolutely. This person loves me. This person has supported me for 20 plus years of my career. This is someone who I consider one of my most important advisors and mentors. And it's because I went back and said, how do I get it? What does it mean that she felt like she had her fingerprints on my journey? When we allow people to have their fingerprints on their success, we realize how many people are invested in us. And so we can't see feedback as a negative thing. We have to see it as an investment in our development. This person cares enough to tell us. By the way, if they didn't give you feedback, they don't think highly of you. They don't actually want to see you improve. They just will let you fail. Yeah, so true. So true. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we value friends who tell us the truth, no matter how hard that conversation may be. Uh, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. There are so many more, uh, for the benefit of my listeners, there's so many more beautiful uh, stories like that in the book. Another reason, uh, you know, to read the book. Um, I would say my best friends in life are the ones where, and we can all, it's funny, one of my best friends, we talk about this one argument we got into. It was a really, really bad argument. And both of us said, on the other side of the argument, we've never been closer. And she told me some things that I really didn't want to hear, to be open mm -hmm. with you. But then I actually stepped back and said, okay, let me put myself in your shoes. You're right. Yeah. Um, Another friend of mine, I was always late, and he said to me, if you're late one more time, I won't make plans with you. My time is valuable, and every time you're late, it indicates that it's not. And I've never been late with him ever again. And it wasn't – it didn't make me feel bad. I didn't beat myself about it, up about it, but I was like, you're right. I'm a better friend if I show up earlier on time. And I've never in – now we've been friends for 15 years. I've never been late since we had that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so true. Okay. Um, another question that I have for you is a lot of people say that confidence comes when you start accomplishing and achieving things and you go out in the world and you start, it's like a muscle that you have to build, but we have to, all of us have to start from somewhere. Like a lot of uh, these schools in India would send out kids to these very high positions. They get placed like from IIT and IIM, they get placed into some very fancy jobs and these are techie, techie nerds, some of them. So they, I would often see these debates happening on YouTube where they're like, and then we were in this very fancy room. We didn't know how to conduct ourselves because we're like people who are in this environment, come from this environment. It's all about study, 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 knuckle down and just study. So what would you say to them how in the absence of, although someone who has made it to IIT probably has a lot of confidence, <laughs> Let's uh, let's forget about them. But someone who's coming from that environment is now venturing out into the world. What advice would you give to them in absence of any real or to their understanding, yeah. any real experience? Well, I, I think one thing that I would say, though, is like I don't and this is my point around satisfaction conundrum. I do think that when we have accomplishments or achievements, it certainly makes us feel good. Yeah. But it shouldn't make us feel more confident because whether or not we got that accomplishment or achievement we still carry value. And I think confidence has to be rooted in your value and your strengths and your talents. And so it's great to accomplish things, but that alone, I mean, I accomplished things for most of my life. I'm an overachieving immigrant kid. 
I will tell you, it doesn't mean I wasn't insecure. Like getting a trophy, winning something didn't make me any less insecure. In fact, it probably made me more insecure. So I would say the accomplishments are never going to be enough, right? They might in the moment make you feel validated, but they're not going to fundamentally change whether or not you believe you deserve it, whether or not you are good enough without it. And I think that's a really important distinction. For someone, I think, who has been academically inclined and then thrown into a different corporate culture, I think this is where I always say, humble and hungry with a lot of allies. And what I mean by that, and I go back to the fact that you don't choose the mentor, the mentor chooses you, make yourself mentorable. I think this is where you say, I am eager to learn. It is clear that I'm a fish out of water. Because again, the mistake we make of one of those six forces is we pretend to be superheroes. There's a facade. We we have to somehow pretend we have this game nailed. And I think it is actually even more confident and say, I deserve to be here. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. There seem to be a lot of things that are culturally important to succeeding in here. Can you help me navigate that? And saying, hey, you know, what is the right way to operate in this meeting or in this corporate culture or in this environment? What are the things you've seen people succeed do well that I could emulate? And I think that, again, is important. I I actually mentored uh, a young man. He's now a senior partner at McKinsey when he was a summer associate who came from the background you just described, right? Really the top school in India and was going to business school in the U.S., and it was very fascinating having him as one of my summer associates. Again, now he's a senior partner at McKinsey because I really felt connected with him as the daughter of immigrants. I really wanted to see him succeed, right? Our life stories had so many parallels. And so for me, I took ownership of whether or not he knew how to operate in the context. I said, I really want you to win here. There's a couple of things I can teach you. But that's what I mean is it's it's having allies and champions, but also recognizing how how much humility you have for that opportunity. Yeah, amazing. Uh, in a workplace environment, continuing with that, uh, we see like there's a lot of change happening now in the world. Uh, all of these young kids who, you know, they, I remember going to work and my first day I was so intimidated. Even the things that I recognized were not okay. Didn't have the courage to speak up, at least not with my first job. Now I see things are changing so much, even from college kids who are going in for internship are challenging the work culture. They're questioning things. They're pushing back. Uh, But some of it, what I see is very aggressive. I feel like maybe some of it. I have a strong, I have a strong point of view on this one. I I think, and, and I actually have a Gen Zer on my team. I actually think they've been sold a lie. Okay. Okay. And here's the lie that they've been sold. I, by the way, I love, if you go back to 2013, I love Lean In. I love Girl Boss. Like, I, I think those were incredibly important moments. But I think that the idea of being overly confident got reduced to a behavior. And so this generation has been taught to be bosses and leaning in and whatnot, but they don't actually know what it means. And in fact, as aggressive as they are, they don't know what they don't know. And they are faking it. They're not actually really confident. And so what I've done with the Gen Z on my team is I've said, I love that you have so much enthusiasm and ideas and energy and don't ever lose that. At the same time, you're going to go faster and grow and develop more if you can take my coaching and experience into consideration. And if we do this together 
and you allow me to give you the benefit of my 23 years of working, then you are going to be that much more equipped. But you coming in, acting like you know how to do this or acting like you have a better idea actually will turn people off long-term. And I know why you're doing it. You've been taught your whole life, you know, confident, confident, be a boss, be a girl boss. Be... And I'm like, that's not wrong, but you don't really understand what truly underpins it. I've been knocked down so many times in my life. By the way, there's no hierarchy of ideas. You do know TikTok better than I do. You do know, you know, and for that, I honor you and I want you to push us. I want you to, I want to benefit from what I don't know because I did not grow up. I didn't get a cell phone until I graduated from college, right? Like I did not have a device glued to my hand. There are so many things that you're going to change in the world, but you're going to do it better and faster if you have allies along the way. So having all the 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, and 60-year-olds in the room with you along for the ride and as your champions, your ideas are going to have a greater chance of success. If you fight them, you won't be here in two to three years and we will not have benefited from the innovation that you could bring to the team. And that snaps people in. Oh, okay. I said, if you bring on the 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds to your way of thinking, you're going to be that much more successful. If you turn them off, they're going to find ways to block you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The aggressive nature, don't lose the enthusiasm, but do it in a way where you go, hey, what's your experience working here? If I put this idea forward, how do I increase its chance of success? What have you seen work here? Because you can't change systems overnight, unfortunately. And the system will consume you, right? They will eat you up a lot. And I think we're going to see a lot of Gen Zers really struggle because they're going to realize that they're not in positions of power, even though they've been told to be self-advocating and aggressive. Yeah, a lot of it. I also uh, believe that, you know, these days we just grab for things. We just reach forward and we grab it instead of trying to earn it. <laughs> I think when you have earned something, you have more of a right to it and you also know how to wield it in a, in a, in a much more refined way. Okay, I'm loving the advice I'm getting from you. Uh, all right, so we've talked about confidence, but I also feel compelled to ask here, what else do you think is at play other than confidence that has helped you find the success that you have, speak so confidently, so eloquently, and be so articulate on the subject. What else is at play? What other personal quality is at play that would complement confidence or perhaps that would just be supportive of a, of people going out there and performing or just, you know, living the life they want? Well, I think it's not doing it alone, right? So, so obviously in my book, so much of the book is spent on self-examination and self-awareness in terms of who you are, what you bring to the table, how to advocate for yourself, how to build new superpowers for the things you want in life. And then we get into really relationships with others. And I, I feel like where people struggle the most is when they feel like they're doing it alone. And my favorite activity is I, I say everyone in life needs a shame buddy. So I have a shame buddy. Everyone needs a shame buddy. It's someone that can really hear what's going on in your head, not judge you, not try to problem solve you. And it allows you to give the voice to the inner critic. So I do an exercise with my shame buddy where I call it worst case, best case, most likely case. And we literally say, okay, this is about to happen. I say, okay, inner critic, worst case scenario. What's the worst that could happen? And what are the six forces that are operating here? Because I hate it when people say, oh, you know what? I, I didn't give you that if I, 
I didn't give you that job if I didn't believe in you. Why don't you just believe in yourself? Versus, hey, tell me why you're afraid. Why are you afraid to take this project on? Just what's the worst that could happen? And when your brain thinks something and then you say it out loud, it feels less scary. It's like Harry Potter. If you can say Voldemort, you're not scared of Voldemort, right? Versus he who shall not be named, then it holds fear over us. But if you say Voldemort, you're like, I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid to say his name. So if you name your worst fear, like what's the worst that could happen and just say it out loud. And then if you know your superpowers and your talents, you say, okay, what's the best case here? And you realize that the most likely case is closer to best because you're in charge again. So the example I use is I, I run a fashion company and in March of 2020, when we the pandemic hit, the sales of my company weren't zero. They were negative. We have a 30-day return policy. People returned things they didn't need. And so in the face of that, the worst case scenario is we were out of business. But I said to my team, what are our superpowers? What do we have that no one else has? And what not what's missing, but what is our potential? And so we pivoted the business for 72 days to making hospital gowns, face masks. We made products that could really make a difference. We pivoted with purpose and not with profit in mind. And I always say it's because we practice what we preach. We didn't, we literally, my, one of my top superpowers is creating. I can will an idea in existence. I can create something from nothing. And so that is a great example where fundamentally believing in your superpowers, being aware of them, but more importantly, being able to drown out your inner critic with the megaphone of what's possible. And I think that's really the unlock here is find someone who you can say things out loud to. I think most of us can think of the one person we want to be able to be that vulnerable with. And more importantly, really that person, as you're telling them what's going on, will hold space for the fact that, hey, I see you. I know this is hard, but I also see how much you bring to the table and your talents. Yeah, I love that. I think we should all sit with that answer for a little bit. There's so much to offer there. So now, you know, you are so inspiring with all of your interviews, all of the content that you've created. And then there's this book. Do you want anything should be done before people read this book? Something that would help them make the best use of the book? Well, you know, I always tell people, I really wish more authors would give you a way to read the book. The book is in three parts. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I think most of us feel pressure to finish a book. We're like, oh my gosh, I have to go on vacation and find eight hours, right? Nobody has that. Everyone's busy. So I always tell people, read my book in two hour chunks, like, you know, read it and, and, and leave it. And the way I think about it is intro through chapter two, that's an hour and a half of your life. And what it really gets into is self-confidence is a choice and a mindset. There are six forces that hold us back. We really have to see ourselves differently before we can behave differently. Read intro, chapter one, chapter two. Leave it behind if you don't want to keep going, right? But already it will change the way you see the world around confidence. It'll reset the paradigm of it. Then I always say, go take the quiz. That's chapter three, by the way. You can take it online on your phone, myconfidencelanguage.com. And chapter four is the really fun. It's like reading your horoscope, right? Okay, which of these eight superpowers do I have? Let me understand them. Let me read about the ones I don't have, you know? And I think that's a really fun exercise. I had a lot of people tell me that during the holidays, they're going to have their families take the quiz because they want to know everybody's superpower. And then chapters five, six, and seven, I call the playbook. Now that you know your confidence language, now we know where you want to go, how do you get credit for it? 
How do you grow it and learn new superpowers? How do you interact with other people who have different superpowers than you? Read it. Don't read it. I love those chapters. I've had people tell me they love chapter six, but I also say you don't have to read it. If, if you get to chapter four and you're done, that's good too. Your life will be better and different. Uh, and then chapter eight is my love letter to feminism, right? It is my contribution to how we create gender equity in the world. Uh, and it can be read on its own. You could read that first if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun on its own. But, but what I like to think of a book as, as opposed to reading it in one sitting, it's one to two hours when you really need to feel inspired or learn something new. And you really can read it, you know, intro through chapter two is two hours. You know, chapter four is half an hour to an hour of my life. Five, six, and seven, I can come back to it. It's a playbook. It's a reference guide. Chapter eight is a half hour and it's really fun. But I love to give people a chance. You don't have to do any work before it, but you can come in and out of the book. It's not something that you have to consume all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Do not skip chapters. This book is amazing. You dive ah, <laughs> in, immerse yourself. This, you know, I value advice that is deep and profound and life-altering, but comes in a, in a form that's very digestible, that's very relatable. <laughs> and you've made this book like that, considering it's about confidence, which is such a major struggle for so many people, which is very sad, but it, it happens. It happens a lot. So do not skip chapters. Read all of it. Oh, that means a lot. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank that you for writing the book. Now, before I run out of time with you, my last question, and this is a weird one. One moment from this amazing journey that you've been on, one moment that you would want other people also to live through and what one moment that you hope you wish hadn't happened to you you would wish wouldn't happen to anyone else any such moments I would love to know about that you know I, I the second part of the question like I I always say I only have learnings I don't have regrets I, I truly believe things don't get easier we get stronger so so there's nothing here that I wouldn't want to have lived through because I've really learned something from every part of it, especially I think the valleys are the ones that really test who we are. And I shared one of them, right? When the sales of your company are negative and it's really interesting. People are like, oh my gosh, would you really want that to happen? And I said, in hindsight now, we are so much stronger because we went through that together, right? I have deeper bonds with key people not just on my team, but out in the world. Like I put on LinkedIn when this happened, the sales of my company are negative. If you have a company that needs a face mask, DM me. And people did. People ordered thousands of face masks for their companies or for their families. So, you know, even that taught me how strong we could become. And so there's nothing that I don't think that I would want to go back in the time machine and change or not have happened. Uh, in terms of the journey now, you know, I really, there's one special thing about writing a book that I hope people get a version of this at some point in their life. I did a nine week, 20 city, 51 event tour, right? I don't recommend that by the way. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but I don't recommend doing 20 cities, 51 events in nine weeks. But there are very few opportunities in life other than like weddings or milestone birthdays where people from across your life, whether it's from your childhood, people you've worked with, people who may not even really know you, but they're associated with you through your college or, you know, that show up for these things. And 
I, I feel, and I'm not married, so I feel like I haven't ever had a wedding. I think this is probably how people, maybe people feel this way when they have a wedding. It's like, oh my gosh. But it wasn't just like a one day or a two day thing. It was over the course, over the course of nine weeks, in every city I went to, I saw people from different parts of my life. And so the book became really almost a lightning rod for all this gratitude, all the impact. Um, one of the funny things I tell people is I'll never be a billionaire, right? I'll never be a billionaire, whether it's on paper and cash and whatnot, but I might be a billionaire in terms of total value and connections created, right? So people came and told me, oh my gosh, because of you, all these other things happened in my life. And I just want to make sure you knew that you were a part of that or this happened and you connected me with this person. And I don't even if you know, we did this business deal together that changed both of our company's lives. And I didn't know all the stories, right? Because I might connect somebody with someone or I might do someone a favor and I never expect a return. So I I really wish, I hope everyone gets that chance. I think it's like that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you've ever seen it at the end. You know, Jimmy Stewart, who's going to commit suicide. And, and at the end, all these people show up with like $1 bills, $5 bills, $10 bills to basically save his business. And everyone goes, you are the richest man in the world, right? Like, just look at this. And and I hope everyone gets that moment or a couple of moments of that life to realize how much of a difference you make. Well, what do you know? We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, for supporting the podcast and for sharing your time with me. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show on whatever podcast platform you love. You can also watch the video version of the interviews and most of the solo episodes on my YouTube channel. Link is in the episode description. Now, if you made it this far, you must love the content at least a little bit, or maybe you just like hanging out with me, or there was something in this particular episode that resonated with you. Or maybe it's all of those things. I would love to know. So if you've got a minute, it will be great if you can drop a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can send me your thoughts on the show via email. Now, if you want content that goes deeper than even the podcast does with a lot of real life stories, one-on-one interactions, or just become part of my tribe, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. The link is in the episode description. Once again, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with me. Take care and I will be back soon with the next episode. Mm